please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is powered by the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation, which supports the educational programs of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, home of Space Camp, working to inspire the next generation of explorers. Learn more about the Foundation's mission at rocketcenterfoundation.org. I mean, the people that, that, you know, develop these experiments, some of it is their life's work. They've been working on this and planning this and developing these experiments for years and years and sometimes decades. And finally, when they get to fly it to the space station and see it happen, you know, it's like kids on Christmas morning. And they get so excited because they're finally seeing the culmination of their life's work. And it's cool just to be a part of that. Penny Pettigrew is a payload communications manager at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. She spends her day communicating with astronauts conducting scientific experiments aboard the International Space Station. She is a Space Camp alumni and a member of the Space Camp Hall of Fame. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this extraordinary individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'll let you know what I find I grew up as a Navy brat, so we moved around quite a bit. Um, We didn't stay in any one spot longer than 12 to 18 months. So constantly moving around, constantly uh, being the new kid in school, having to make new friends, start all over until um, I hit uh, junior high school. And that was, I was living in San Diego at the time. So I consider San Diego home that's where I actually stayed in one place for a while. Um, that's where I graduated high school. Growing up in San Diego is what, you know, helped shape me into the person that I am. But um, growing up in the, the shuttle era, you know, I grew up wanting to be an astronaut like a lot of kids during that time. You know, I wasn't alive for the moon landing, so I don't have that excitement. You know, Apollo, the Apollo program was happening while while I was alive, but I was too young to to really realize what was going on. When the shuttle first started launching, you know, every launch was on TV. They would roll the TV in on the cart in the classroom, and, you know, we would huddle around the TV and we would watch every launch. And I think that helped spark the excitement. But it wasn't until Sally Ride launched that I thought, this is something I could do, because I finally saw a female, you know, as a member of the astronaut corps launching into space. And that's when it became a real possibility that this is something I could grow up and be. It's not just a pipe dream. Of course, with the Challenger accident, it was it was the same routine. We watched that launch in class. And I remember it because I was in an English final in high school. And of course, I was devastated. But after the initial shock and 
despair, I started thinking about if I weren't an astronaut, maybe there are other things at NASA I could do to keep this from happening again. You know, I thought about all the people on the ground that that had a part in the shuttle program and what could somebody have done that could have stopped this from happening. And that's that was kind of the first time I started thinking about careers with NASA outside of just being an astronaut because the astronauts are the ones you always see on TV. That's those are the ones that, you know, get all the press and that's and they have the cool job, right? They get to go play and fly in space. Right, right. But um you don't hear as much about all the people on the ground that make it possible for them to do that. At what point did you go to space camp? When I was in high school, this movie came out called Space Camp. <laughs> and of course, you know, as a kid wanting to be an astronaut, had my mom take me to the movie. And you know, when you're watching a movie, you never know, is this a real place? Is this just a movie? Is this something made up? And at the very end, it said, filmed on location in Huntsville, Alabama. And and again, I was in San Diego at the time. I said, Mom, I have to go there. And she knew I wasn't kidding. But, you know, we weren't local. It, it involved not only tuition, but it involved airfare and, you know, traveling by yourself and things like that. And it took a while. And it actually wasn't until my freshman year of college that Christmas morning... Santa brought me a gift certificate to space camp. (laughs) So I actually didn't attend until I was a freshman in college. So I had to attend the adult program because I had aged out of space camp and space academy um, for the kids programs. But I was still going to space camp. Right. And and that was my first taste of it. And, And that experience changed my life and literally put me on the path to where I am today. I would not be where I am today had I not gone to space camp. I was at the Colorado School of Mines in Golden, Colorado. I fell I fell in love with chemistry in high school, okay. and I was a chemistry major at the School of Mines, and I got my bachelor's in chemistry. And actually, my space camp experience and my school experience kind of came together, um, even though I didn't think of it at the time, and I don't know why I didn't. When I came to space camp, one of the things that was part of the program back then is they took us on a bus tour out to the Marshall Space Flight Center to show us some of the space station mock-ups and kind of show us what NASA was doing in Huntsville. But as part of that, they also showed us there's a university across the interstate, the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and explained that they had strong ties to the Marshall Space Flight Center. Fast forward to being a senior in college, trying to figure out what I'm going to do, you know, after graduation, I had planned to go to graduate school, further my education. In my mind, I wanted to go back to California. I was a California kid. I wanted to go back, do my graduate work there. So I spent spring break going and touring potential graduate schools. When you're going to graduate school, you hope to find a project or a topic that really interests you because you're going to spend several years of your life Um, investigating this topic and after touring all these schools I came back to Mines after spring break disappointed because not one professor that I talked to told me anything that was a possibility to work on that grabbed me and grabbed my interest that made me say yes that's where I want to go I want to work on that and so I came back disappointed and I'm like 
well, now I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and I relayed this story to the counselor at the School of Mines, exactly as I just told you. And she said, well, what do you want to do eventually when you get out of school? And I said, well, I want to do space stuff. She said, then go where they do space stuff. Now, like, that was a dumb moment. Why didn't I think about that? I had it in my mind. I wanted to go home. I wanted to go to California. I didn't think about what's the next step after grad school. So that's what I remembered. When I went to space camp, there was a university in town with strong ties to, to NASA in town. So I applied to UAH in Huntsville. Again, got accepted, got invited to a tour. Same process as what I did in California, but when I left Huntsville, I left with a feeling of there's no other place I should be. And I never thought I would have that feeling about Alabama. Never lived here, never lived in the South, lived all over the country, but never here. And so I came to UAH for grad school and I've been here ever since. I got a master's degree in chemistry and material science with an emphasis in microgravity material science at UAH. How um, materials react differently in low Earth orbit was my area of study. If you think of the space station is in low Earth orbit going around the Earth. Right. The materials that the space station is made out of have to last for a long time. They can't degrade. Down here on Earth, we breathe oxygen, O2. Up there in space, it's actually a single O, which if you remember back from your chemistry days, this is where my chemistry background came into play. <laughs> uh, you know, a single oxygen atom is very reactive because it has an unpaired electron and it wants to react with whatever it can bond to. And as the space station is going around the Earth, it's hitting all this atomic oxygen. The experiment that I worked on involved exposing different materials to, to the outside of the space station and to um, see which ones react the least with the atomic oxygen that it's exposed to. Because using that information, the next step is to develop new materials that will withstand this environment and last in space for a long time for either a space station or future vehicle purposes. So after I got my master's, I was hired to work as a contractor out at the Marshall Space Flight Center. And my first job was supporting a facility called the Material Science Research Rack, which at the time was a facility that was being designed to support science on the International Space Station. And it was being designed in collaboration between NASA at the Marshall Space Flight Center and the European Space Agency. It was one of the first um, international cooperations to develop a facility for, specifically for the space station. So I was like the science oversight of this facility to make sure what they built would meet the needs of the scientists that wanted to use it. So I was kind of the, the middleman between <laughs> the engineers building the facility and the scientists who needed to use the facility to make sure that there was no disconnects there. I worked on that project for about five years, but then you know, once it was designed, and to the point of being built, they didn't need, you know, science oversight 
from my, me and my team anymore because all the requirements were locked in. They were now going to go build what we told them to build. Right. So I wasn't needed to support that facility. Now they're going into fabrication and going to you know, launch that facility to the space station. So I went on and, and did several other smaller projects out at Marshall. As you know, NASA is a government agency and we are funded by the U.S. government. And so sometimes NASA's focus gets redirected based on budgets. All the little projects that I started to work on kept getting canceled for budgetary oh, no. reasons. So then I had to, you know, find the next thing and I'd work on it for about a year and then that would get cut and then I'd find the next thing. And I kind of felt like I was the the bad luck charm because everything I worked on kept getting canceled. But then ultimately I started supporting the Constellation program and the Ares project, which was the rocket that was supposed to replace the space shuttle when the space shuttle was retired. We worked on that, like I said, I worked on that for five years and got as far as to the first test flight. So there were there was a rocket built, there was a rocket launched. Um, the test flight was successful, we learned a lot, but then shortly after that test flight, as with everything in the government, when there's a new president elected and new budgets come out, that project was canceled. Again, I was I was the bad luck charm, I felt like. But but so anyway, I was a rocket scientist for about five years working on the Ares project, but then it was canceled, and this was about the same time that the space shuttle was being retired. So there's all those employees that were working on both vehicle programs at NASA that had to find new jobs. The space shuttle's retired, but space station starts ramping up and needs people to support it. Um, now that it's completely built, NASA got into the utilization stage. Okay, we have the space station. What are we going to do with it? Well, the space station was built to do science in low Earth orbit. That was the whole point of it being there. It is a national orbiting laboratory. So um, a lot of us that had supported the vehicles switched gears and went down and started supporting the International Space Station because that's where the focus of NASA went at the time. And that's when I became a payload communications manager or a PACOM, which really means I'm one of the few people on this earth that get to talk to the astronauts who live and work on board the space station. And the neat thing is my first experience with a role like this was during the missions when I went to space camp as a kid. Really? Because in space camp, you do you usually get to do two missions. One where you're an astronaut crew member and one where you're a flight controller on the ground. So you get a taste of both sides of the mission. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I got to personally experience what it's like to be one of those people on the ground supporting the astronauts in space to help them be successful which was, you know, exactly what I was thinking about after the Challenger accident, is how can I be one of those people on the ground that could maybe help keep this from happening again? Everybody thinks of Mission Control, which is in Houston at the Johnson Space Center. I'm in Huntsville. We have a control center here in Huntsville that most people aren't aware of, 
and it's called the Payload Operations Integration Center, or POIC. Okay. It is Huntsville's version of Mission Control. We our, our room can do pretty much everything that Mission Control in Houston can do. But the, the way the two facilities are different is Houston supports the space station as a facility or as a home. They make sure it's a safe place for the astronauts to live and, and work. We in Huntsville focus specifically on the science the astronauts are doing on board the space station. Again, that's the whole point of the space station being in orbit. It's a national orbiting laboratory. I always say if the astronauts have a question about a science experiment that they're doing, they call me in Huntsville. If the toilet backs up, they call Houston. So I think we have the better end of it. It sounds like. (laughs) We work hand in hand with Houston every day to support the astronauts and ensure they're safe. Their safety is um, the number one goal. The astronauts who are doing these experiments there on the ISS, uh, many of them are scientists, maybe all of them are scientists, but they aren't necessarily specialists in the fields of the science they're doing at any given moment. Is, is, and so you serve as being like a liaison between like an expert and, and someone who's trying to do that expert's work in orbit? That's exactly it. You, you nailed it. Astronauts train for two to three years before they go to the space station. They get a lot of training, but they can't be trained on absolutely everything they're going to do when they get there. So they get trained on how to use facilities. They get trained on, you know, um, processes and how to be safe, but they can't practice absolutely everything they're going to do in space on the ground before they go. They just learn the general skills and apply them to whatever is scheduled for them when they get there. They may know about some of the science experiments they're performing, but they're not going to be trained in all of them. The same for me as a PACOM. I know a little bit about a lot of the activities they're going to do, but I am by no means an expert either in everything that they're doing. But those scientists that develop those experiments, that it could be their life's work to get an experiment on the space station, and to get an astronaut to perform their experiment, they support real time. When an astronaut is doing a science experiment, the people that designed and built that experiment are playing along at home, basically, or from wherever their their lab is. They are listening in real time while the astronauts are doing their uh, experiment because if there's a question that we can't answer, we have to rely on the people that designed it to tell us, you know, how do we answer this question? So I can just relay the information to the astronauts. Again, sometimes I, I do feel like a middleman between them, but that's where my background comes into play. You know, you don't have to have a master's in microgravity material science to be a PACOM, but it certainly helps because I understand why we are doing science in space and I can help communicate those answers between the scientists who's who talks you know scientific ease and right. the astronauts who just want to know how do i do this thing <laughs> right some some of our astronauts are like home mechanics you know they're very engineering inclined you know they like to tinker and put things together they don't necessarily care why they just want to get it together and make it work right so sometimes i have to be that interpreter between the science and, you know, all those scientific terms and the garage mechanic 
that just wants to know how do I make it work. Are experiments running 24 hours a day, every day, always? They are. Um, Mission Control and the POIC, we are both 24-hour operations. There is somebody in that room all the time. We work weekends. We work holidays. We work government furloughs. We work COVID closures. (laughs) We were always still at work during, during these times because the astronauts are still in orbit. So we have we support them whenever they are there. Experiments are running all the time, but not all experiments require hands-on by the astronauts. When a, when a scientist wants to get their experiment on board the space station, they have to submit you know all their requirements. And then NASA takes all these submissions from all over the place and has to figure out, okay, which ones can we really get on board and get accomplished and which ones just aren't going to make it? So one of the requirements that can help you get an experiment on the space station quicker is if you don't need a lot of crew time because there are only so many hours during the day that the the astronauts on board the space station have to do science. If your experiment just requires you to launch the space station, get unpacked, installed and turned on, and that's the extent of your crew interaction, you're more likely to get that accomplished than something that needs hours and hours of hands-on crew time during the day. One of my favorites that I've experienced over the years, and I've been at PACOM now for 11 years, it was an experiment dealing with the burning of different solids. It was called BASS. Basically, it was an investigation into how different materials burn Because if you understand the thermodynamics of how something burns, you can then develop ways to put out those fires better because you can focus in on the ignition source and the ignition site to try to put out those flames. So it was it was an experiment in fire suppression. And, you know, you think about it in space, if you have a fire in space, you definitely are going to want to be able to put it out as fast as possible. Right. They would send up all these different um, materials. Like if you've heard of Nomex, you know, Nomex is something they make lab coats and firemen uniforms out of that isn't supposed to burn. Well, they had different versions of that to see if they could make, you know, a lighter material that still doesn't burn the same way that, you know, Nomex doesn't burn because anything that's lighter, less less weight a fireman has to wear going into a burning building would be beneficial. But watching all these these different materials burn in space was so cool because flames don't work in space like they do on the ground. You're used to, if you light a candle and you get that nice, you know, candle-like shape and you know the hottest part is at the bottom and then as it goes out from the flame, you know, it gets a little less hot and less hot and you go from blues to reds to orange to yellows and and everybody knows what a candle looks like when it's lit in space it doesn't look like that because that that candle shape is gravity driven heat rises you know there's convection by air and that will make a candle flicker but if you take all those out of the equation and you're just burning materials to see how it it's very intrinsic source they would burn without microgravity without air currents these flames just look like a ball they look like a jawbreaker wow and and it still has the different layers of color 
but they they don't spread out like they do here on Earth because you don't have all that convection and everything else that drives processes on Earth. That's why scientists want to do science in space. If you take out all other mitigating factors, you can get down to the core of why does something happen the way it does if there's nothing else affecting it. Were so they, it's very cool to watch. I yeah. mean, just you know, to, to know that there's this controlled little fire on the space station, but it's <laughs> so we can use the knowledge that they're gaining. And, and the science of it was they just wanted to watch them burn. There was no data or anything collected. It was just, we want to watch and see what happens because that'll tell us how something is burning compared to another substance. You know, way back in the day when they developed um, battery powered tools, like we've all got in our garage, battery powered drill or saw or whatever. Those came out of technology developed for NASA's space program because astronauts couldn't be having to plug things in to be able to use them on board. They needed things to be battery powered. And at that time, everything had a plug. Right. There, there have been you know, tons of products that we use in our daily lives that came out of the space program, but the, that was more in the early days. Sure. Now, I mean, there's all kinds of things happening, but I don't know that it's always, it's not always advertised that this is where they got their start. Sure. You know, in a perfect world, I could remain a PACOM until the space station is retired, which right now we're hearing 2030, right. which would be just about time for retirement. So that <laughs> might work out well. Um, but with the Artemis program and all the the new adventures NASA is on, you know, putting astronauts back on the moon and eventually going to Mars, when we do that, we're going to need flight controllers that support those crews as well. So I'm hoping that in some form or fashion, I can use the skills that I've learned as a PACOM and a flight controller these these past 11 years and apply them to the next mission. You know, a lot of people, their goals are, you know, they want to make more money and they want to get into management and, and do all those kind of things because they think that's, that's where the money is, right? I don't think there's anything wrong with doing something you love. That doesn't mean you're not ambitious. That doesn't mean you don't have goals. It means you finally found your happy point. And, you know, I'm in my happy place. It's not all about the money. It's about loving what you do and loving going to work every day. So everybody's got a different motivation, but mine is is happiness. And I've got a good balance. I love what I do. I still have time to be a mother to my daughter. To me, there's nothing else I need. Um, I'll say that I've been a Paycom this long because I absolutely love it. It is the best job I've ever had. I wish I had been in a role like this from the first day I started working at the Marshall Space Flight Center. <laughs> it's it's part of my of who I am. I am Paycom Penny. <laughs> you know, I've I've thought about that. And and yes, I'd still want to. I, I don't think I would do anything long duration. Like I, I don't think I would do six months on the space station like our current crews do. You know, if it were like a two-week mission to the moon, maybe. But I'm thinking in reality, if I were to get to go up, it would be more on like a Blue Origin type mission where, you know, it's only a 
a 30 minute type flight <laughs> right. um, where I could go up, I could experience, I could see it for myself, but I could still be here to, you know, pick up my daughter from school at the end of the day. <laughs> Don't let anybody tell you no or that you can't do something. And, and specifically, um, you know, I know growing up as a girl interested in science and space, I, I had a lot of roadblocks I had to deal with even all the way through graduate school. And I felt that a lot of them were simply because I was a female. And, you know, I could have given up many times along the way. But, you know, anybody that knows me knows I'm stubborn and, and I don't take no for an answer. If, if a roadblock gets put in your way, you have to find a way around it, over it, under it. Sometimes you just have to crash right through it. But don't let anybody make you feel like your goals and your dreams are not worthy. Because if you can dream it, you can be it. Find somebody that's doing the work that you think you're interested in and just express your interest in it and talk to them about what it's really like. I'll tell you, a lot of people in the space industry love to talk about what they do. I mean, we've been sitting here talking for an hour about what I do. Right. Um, to find a younger person that is interested in what they do, they'll talk your ear off. They'll answer all your questions. Most of them will be happy to do that. And now that it's so much easier to reach out to people via email or a website, you know, don't be afraid to just send an email. The worst that'll happen is you don't get a response. The best that'll happen is somebody will respond and say, I would love to talk to you about this. I'm not a scary person. You know, <laughs> just, just because I work at NASA doesn't mean you can't just drop me an email. And if I have time and I have the bandwidth, you bet. I'll, I'll help you any way that I can. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time 